Here we go. Chapter 4. All right, in terms of market structure, did we get this? Everybody got this in their notes? structure and segmentation. We're getting there. We're getting there. Let's keep rolling. Yes, we could do it. Yes, we can. Yeah. Caroline, we could do it. Trevita, let's make this happen. We're going. We're going. Let's go places. That's what Toyota says, right? <laughs> That's the slogan for their campaign. Let's go places. It used to be Moving forward, do you remember? That used to be their the slogan for their campaign. Sometimes they would use it as a tagline with their um, with their logo. But what they didn't say was that you would move forward whether you wanted to or not. That was a problem, right? With the accelerator, so you be in your car and suddenly your car is going 90 miles per hour into your garage door. That was a problem. What was that? What was Enron's slogan? <laughs> yeah, mm, that's a different issue. All right, so market structure. Let's take, for example, if we look at, if we do this category hierarchy for the beverage industry. In the U.S. So let's take this, let's look at the market structure for the beverage industry. So we have alcohol. So here are some of the segments in the beverage market. Alcohol, soda, milk, and orange juice, right? beverage industry, this is an example of the structure, the market structure. So this is how we could segment the beverage market in terms of opportunities. So these are different segments. When we create this market structure, or this category hierarchy, right? When we create this market structure, this category hierarchy, and we place a number, that's known as market sizing.
but quantifying the size of the market. Targeting is when we're selecting particular segments to pursue. So let's say we're going to pursue this segment and this segment. That's an example of targeting. We're selecting. We're selecting segments. This is an example of quantifying. Segmentation is when we're dividing a market into submarkets. So alcohol, so this segment of the beverage industry is about 60% of the total beverage market in the United States in terms of retail dollars. And that includes beer, wine, spirits, and then there's different types of spirits like rum, vodka, tequila, whiskey, all things that you guys know nothing about, right? Right. All right, let's take another example. How about the coffee market? Coffee, that's what everybody wants right now. Forget about wings. You want coffee, right? All right, so what about the coffee market? So the U.S. coffee market, the U.S. coffee market is $8 billion. Now within the U.S. coffee market, we've identified these two key segments, institutional and retail. So institutional, what is that? So institutional is... Vendor, vending machines. Well, so like institutional would be, this would be more consumer. Like retail, we think about buying coffee um, at grocery stores, and this is institutional would be at like hotels, restaurants. So this is two billion dollars. Retail is six billion. Now within retail, there's different product forms. There's ground coffee whole bean, and instant. And then, within this market, there's also decaffeinated coffee and caffeinated coffee. So, this is another example of a market structure. We use segmentation to divide a market. So we talk about segmentation. Say, what is that? Coach, segmentation, I don't, I'm not sure. Segmentation is basically dividing a market into submarkets. And what's the benefit of 
segmentation. Why do we segment markets? What's one of the benefits of segmenting a market? Well, one of them, go ahead. Yeah, you're going to identify opportunities for new products. Absolutely. So the, one of the ways that you're going to be able to do that is to leverage your critical thinking skills and divide the market into sub-markets. Now, when we do that, and there's a number of ways that we could do that, in terms of the basis, the basis for segmentation is demographic, which is another way of saying socioeconomic. So in the book, it uses the term socioeconomic, which is demographics. One way that we could segment the market is demographics. Like for what? what, what what's an example of a demographic? Their age, gender, religion, education, right? So all of those, all of those are examples of ways that we could segment the market. Demographic, geographic, geographic, psychographic. These are different ways. We're talking about setting the basis for segmentation. What are the different ways we could segment the market? Psychographic, which is lifestyles, which could include what? Hobbies, right? Is an example of a lifestyle? And then behavioral. So again, we're talking about different ways we could segment the market. So in terms of behavioral segmentation, what we're talking about um, could be the usage rate. So we want to find out what percentage are, in terms of the consumption rate, we're going to want to find out what percentage of our customers or in the entire category are consuming at a low level. moderate and high. This is very important. So when we have data and we do a cluster analysis and identify these segments in terms of the usage rate, their level of consumption, so it's low, moderate or heavy consumption, or No consumption, which would be a non-user. 
when we do our research, we want to get input from the non-users as well. We want to find out, why don't you drink orange juice? So we identify those that are consuming at a low level. That's going to inform our strategies. So it's not just interesting. Then we say we want to have things that are actionable. It's not just interesting that they consume at a low level. Our challenge now as marketers is, what are we going to do to increase their consumption? That's our challenge. How do we increase their consumption rate? It's not just, oh, wow, that's 20% of our customers only drink orange juice once a month. Once a month, we need to get them to drink three times a day. How are we going to make that happen? And then, of course, those that don't drink orange juice. Remember, I've always told you that when we do research, sometimes um, we get excited about the fact that we have a high level of brand awareness. But then we don't ask the, enough questions to find out that although we have a high level of brand awareness, that the purchase intent could be very low. So we have to make sure that we ask questions about purchase intent as well. Because even though we could have a high level of awareness, like the Coke brand could have a high level of awareness, it doesn't mean that the purchase intent is going to be high. Maybe out of our sample, we find that 20% of the people don't drink soda. Oh, we were so excited, our brand awareness was 98%. But then we find out 20% of the people don't drink soda. Well, maybe 50% don't drink soda. And so then we need to craft our strategy around those facts so that we could convert potentially the non-users or what sometimes we refer to as the non-adopters. In terms of benefits sort, um, an example could be in the toothpaste category. So what are some of the benefits? Why do people use toothpaste? Think about the benefit. What is the benefit of using toothpaste? Whitening, fights plaque, flight fights tartar, fresh breath, fights cavities. Those are all... Now, when we segment the market, that's just interesting, right? We find out that there's segments in the market, there's consumers, in this particular case, who want toothpaste that's going to whiten their teeth. And we find out that there's a segment of consumers who want toothpaste that's going to fight plaque and those that will fight tartar. Questions? So we talked about fixed cost, total fixed cost, and unit fixed cost, total variable cost, and unit variable cost. So as a clarification, we said, Variable costs, they vary with the production volume, but when we say variable costs, we're talking about the total variable costs. The unit variable costs should stay the same. Unless, like I said, there was a unique situation where we were able to negotiate a lower price for the raw materials per unit. All right. Break-even volume. What is the break-even volume? How do we compute that? We take the total fixed cost and we divide that by the unit selling price after we subtracted the unit variable cost. So let's take an example. Let's say that 
The total fixed cost is $30,000. If our selling price is $5, and our unit variable cost is $2, so what we're going to do is we're going to calculate the break-even volume. This is the formula. We take the total fixed cost and we divide that by the unit selling price. How much do we sell it for per unit? And we subtract the unit variable cost. See, we're talking about the unit variable cost. The total variable cost, the total variable cost could be $2 million. If the, if the total variable cost is $2 million, what does that tell us about how many units? What's the total number of units then? How much? How many? I think somebody said it. Well, if our total variable cost is two million and our unit variable cost is two dollars, then it's a million. So our break-even volume here is what? Thirty thousand divided by Three, right? So what is that? 10,000. Best business students ever. Right, Caroline? Yes. Best business students ever. So 10,000 units. What that tells us is that in order for us to break even, not make money, just to break even, we'd have to sell 10,000 units. This is extremely important because this is going to give us a sense so when we're doing an analysis of an opportunity, this is going to give us a sense as to whether or not we should pursue this opportunity, whether or not it's feasible. So if I told you that the size of the market was 5,000 units per year in the United States, what do you think about the feasibility of our initiative based on this break-even volume? What do you think? Is it something that we should pursue? Should we pursue this project or no? How many say... Don't pursue. Raise your hand. Two people. How many say pursue? Two people. It was the same two people. All right, so this is what Coach thinks. If we've computed the break-even volume to be 10,000 units and the size of the market is 5,000 units, that means that it's not something that's feasible for us because we'd have to sell twice the number of units as the total market just to be profitable. What would be our payback period? How many years would it take us to, to break even? Well, I would just like to make an exception because Apple is still trying to sell a lot of watches, right? And the market for watches is really, really small compared to the amount they produce. It. So it's just an exception. So, Right now, so what Jimmy is saying is in the introduction stage of the market, we're going to talk about the new product life cycle. So at the introduction um, stage, it might be more challenging for us to actually even compute the break-even volume. Right, Jimmy, what would you think would be the break-even volume? And who are our competitors? When we say the market, is it all watches? Well, the point I was not from day because you're saying um, because the breaking volume over here is 10,000 units and the total market shares currently is 5,000 units, 
anything unfeasible, and I'm just naming naming an exception um, because uh, I think last last quarter um, uh, there were like six hundred thousand um, digital watches that were sold, and Apple's planning on selling millions of these watches for twenty fifteen. Mm -hmm. So I'm just naming an exception. So Jimmy is saying basically that what I'm assuming in my scenario is that it's a mature market. So I'm mature, assuming that it's a mature market and the size of the category is 5,000 units per year. And that's not going to grow significantly in the near future. It's not going to grow exponentially. It's not going to grow geometrically. <clears throat> so... If I told you that the size of the market was 100,000 units in our mature category, then 10,000 units, they might seem feasible. So we would have to sell 10,000 units. We'd have to basically get a 10% share, which could be very challenging in a highly concentrated market, certainly. <clears throat> and a mature market where the size of the market is stable, which is a good thing, so it could be large, but it's not growing, or it might be growing only 1% or 2% per year. So this is important in terms of assessing the feasibility of initiative, determining the break-even volume. The size of the market is significant. We need to know what is the size of the market, and then compare that to what we computed to be the break-even volume. All right, let's take an example about it regarding trade margin. Let's say, for example, we sell a product for $20. We sell the product as a retailer. We sell the product for $20. We buy it for $10. So as a percentage, our margin as a percentage of the price is 50%. So basically that's just 10. This is our margin. $10 is our margin. So I told you that it's a product that we sell for $20. If we sell it for $20 and we buy it for $10, that means that our margin is $10. If I told you that we sell it for $20 and we buy it for $15, then our margin would be what? $5. So $20 is what we sell it for. If we buy it for $15, we'd have to subtract the $15, what we bought it for, from the price, right? That leaves us with $5 of margin. What about if we sell it for $20 and we buy it for $5? Then how much is our margin? How much? Don't do it. $15. Why? We sell it for $20. We buy it for $5. That means our margin per unit is $15. So what I suggested was we buy it for $10 and we sell it for $20. So how do we calculate our trade margin? Well, if we buy it, to go back, right? If we buy it for $20, if we sell it for $20 and we bought it for $10, that means our margin per unit is $10. So as a percentage of the price, our margin as a percentage of price is 50%. That's 
that's very common in retail, to compute the margin as a percentage of the price. So we're selling the product for $20. What is our trade margin? 50%. 50% of the price is what we're selling, is what our margin is. So our margin is a percentage of the price. Our margin is $10. The price is $20. So that means that our margin as a percentage of price is 50%. But we can compute our margin as a percentage of cost. Margin as a percentage of cost would be $10 over $10, right? So our margin over our cost is $10, that means our margin as a percentage of cost is 100%. But very often in retail, we look at margin as a percentage of price. So you see the difference? The margin as a percentage of price, we said was 50%. Our margin as a percentage of cost, in this example, is 100%. So it matters. So when you talk to retailers, you need to make sure, when you're talking to the buyers and retailers, you need to make sure that you're both on the same page, whether or not when you say 50 points or 100 points, that they know that you're talking about 50 points as a percentage of price. Because you see the difference in terms of a percentage of cost, that would be 100%. Best students ever, ever. 